Hello, everyone, and welcome to part three of our book club reading Ivan Illich's Gender. We're very excited. We're getting into some of the meat of the book today. Um, this is my host, Maria. Hi, Maria. Hi, Mark. <laughs> You're not my host. What is it? Co-host. Co-host. Uh, so up until this point, we have discussed Illich's critique of economic sex, which is basically that once you destroy gender polarity as a reality um, and try to have a unisex world in which um, male-female difference is just a sort of gloss on the fundamentally androgynous human, um, then women lose. Yeah, pretty emphatically too. Yeah, because women are different um, and they have children. And so especially, it's not a necessary thing, I guess, but because our industrial society is the way it is, women are less able to um, meet the ideals of that society. And so the move towards a unisex society becomes, in fact, sexist. Mm -hmm. And he makes all sorts of bold claims, like the nation state is inherently sexist. He says that. doesn't really back it up so much, but... Such to feel true with all his examples. <laughs> yeah, I, I think <clears throat> it starts to make more sense too as we move into the next couple of chapters as well, um, because all that sounds really vague when you have nothing compare it against. Yeah. Um, so he keeps talking about vernacular gender and how this is different, and we got into that at the well in the last podcast yeah. with the last chapter, but now he's really moving into specifically what that looks like and there's a lot of examples and i think i mean that's why i found this part of the book to be the most exciting and the most uh, it rocks yeah no i mean it, it's like i looked up at some point it's just like I, I like gender gender's super rad yeah you it's know? it's a lot more complex and creative well it's really fun i feel like you know ever since i was like like gender as it was introduced into like my modern public school education was always like here's this problem you know inequity inequality and and you know life in america is just one big figuring out this gender problem so like whether you agree with that or not the point is it's not super fun but the way he describes it i'm like oh this isn't just this agonizing like wart that we all have to freeze off of our skin <laughs> this is something fun um and i think that's maybe the yeah i was just kind of i was a vibing yeah i don't know if that's the <laughs> that's the not the point. takeaway <laughs> Just so you get why my, I'm enthusiastic today, as opposed to a little more dreary when I'm talking about the economic sex of modernity. Right. So let's jump into chapter four. Uh, this chapter is called Vernacular Culture. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just going to read the little introduction in the beginning because yeah. it's really helpful. So he begins by saying, tools are intrinsic to social relationships. Each person relates to society through actions and the tools effectively mastered to carry out those actions. To the degree that one actively masters one's tools, their shape determines his, her self-image. In all pre-industrial societies, a set of gendered-specific tasks is reflected in a set of gender-specific tools. Even tools that are there for common use can be touched only by, by only half the people. By grasping and using a tool, one relates primarily to the appropriate gender. As a result, intercourse between genders is primarily social. Separate toolkits determine the material complementarity of life. The separateness of toolkits can lead to an extreme division of domains. In a moving chapter, 
Pierre Clostres. No idea. Who has lived among, oh, goodness. the You didn't practice beforehand. I did not. Guayaki. Celebrate. Right. Reports on such a split in the world in the Amazon jungle. Women's domain here is organized around the basket each one has woven for herself at the time of her menses, and the men's world turns around the bow. No personal authority stands above the two domains. Mm. The division, which is constantly experienced, engenders the tension that holds the society together. If ever a woman touches the bow of a hunter, he loses his manhood and becomes pane. That's another one I didn't practice, but I think that's right. His arrows become useless, his sexual powers are lost, he is excluded from the hunt, and if he does not just shrivel and die, he lives out his life behind women's huts, gathering food in a discarded basket. Ain't that just the way? <laughs> Haven't um, we all just felt like we're living our life behind women's huts, gathering food in a discarded basket? That or be like a plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, he's... He's taking a, a, a really interesting object of analysis here, which is tools, like the, mm -hmm. the way that – which is perfect for what we've been talking about because tools are sort of both a way we shape the world themselves and then the means by which we shape the world. So it's quite literally a construction that's also used in constructing. So as we talk about gender as a kind of construction, he's actually looking at a gender division that's almost – it, it, in some ways, almost predates like the actual work of constructing. It's like, well, one of the primary mm -hmm. things we do is construct male-female worlds. And so the world has this sort of, you know, he says no personal authority stands above the two domains. It's like the world has an irreducible twofoldness to it. It's not like there's some higher court of appeals outside of male and female that like right. the worlds could be judged by. Mm -hmm. Um but they actually have a kind of independent life that's known or can be studied um, by the tools. Yeah, and I, I think this is um, intuitive to us when he talks about uh, to the degree that one actively masters one's tools, their shape determines his, her self-image. I mean, we experience this in jobs. Totally. Yeah. Right? Like who who I am is, is what I do. Mm -hmm. And what I do is defined by the tools that I'm using. How well can I use this computer? How well can I use this scalpel? Whatever your job is, yeah. it's your mastery over the tools that make you that thing. And, and he's so, going to go on to say this extreme example of the bow and the basket mm -hmm. within yeah, this particular extreme. culture. <laughs> um, but well, it's extreme, but he's going to say that this is one of the marks of a pre-industrial society is that there mm -hmm. are objects that are for women and objects that are for men. There are tools for women. There are tools for men. And that they can't simply be exchanged for each other um, mm -hmm. without some loss, without some some cataclysmic event. And I do think this is still true. This is one of the things that gets lost sometimes. Like if it's true, if what he's talking about is true, it's always true. Gender is always there. Um, it's just can, it can be beaten down. It can be reduced. But it, if it's part of human nature, we're still here, you know, as mm -hmm. you know, male and female. And so I was thinking to myself, like, okay, where do, where do I still have this sense of like a tool that's like only? And I realized, oh, it's obvious for for Americans, it all comes down to like the bathroom. Like the only, uh, you know, it's, it's sad, <laughs> but like the only time where you feel the sense that if you enter into this, this particular space. space, you will lose your sexual powers, be excluded <laughs> from the hunt and shrivel and die is if you go into a women's bathroom. And I'm, obviously there's a certain level of freedom that comes with like an emergency <coughs> situation, which we'll discuss a little bit of. But I do think that 
one of the reasons that like the whole transgender debate has focused in this absurd way around like bathroom use is because it's the last remaining symbolic of a gendered tool for us, like something that actually divides the domain in a way that's felt. Mm-hmm. And you might say that you don't, <laughs> and I'm the weird guy here, but I know you're lying because there's only two kinds of people in this world, people that are worried about using the wrong bathroom and liars. <laughs> and liars. <laughs> Okay, that's a bit. Yeah. But the point is that there really were tools that are divided. He goes into these beautiful descriptions. Maybe you can just read some of your favorites because I like them all. I'll just read the whole book and then <laughs> call it a book club. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, here's a good one. Um, so this is on page 91. So the one that we just read or that shows up in the introduction is a very extreme example. Um but he also writes, while in North America, even in Quebec, gender has been laundered from tools, uh, but it still survives in the tools of many pockets of rural Europe and in some places more than others. Here, men use the scythe and women the sickle. They both use a sickle, but there are two sickles, each of a different design. The handle and blade betray the gender. Um, in Styria, for example, men's sickles are... Clean edge for cutting, women's are indented, curved, and made for the gathering of stocks. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's I, I like that example because in that example, you can see that both men and women are occupying the same space. Yeah. Uh, and in some, some cases, they're doing the exact same job, but mm-hmm. they're doing it within the domain of their gendered world. Right. And so you can see how a lot of what's already been discussed follows from this. Like there would be competition in sickle use and competition in scythe use, but there's no sickle to scythe competition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So that there's actually a sort of overall decrease in envy within the world as a result. Um, And there's also just the ability to occupy the same spaces, but differently, which Mm -hmm. seems to be just characteristic of male and female like when we talk about these worlds often people get this like geographical idea from that one (laughs) stupid movie uh about there's many the handmaid's tale or something oh yeah um i've never seen it isn't it a show maybe i don't know there's a bunch of people wearing red they look pretty cool i don't know what they're complaining about they look so cool but no you know what's an even better example is like in mad max have you seen mad max fury road where like the women are locked up to just make milk for the king i guess i didn't know that was a plot oh it's it's wild but the point is we tend to think of this thing of like a geographic enclosure like the women's world over there the men's world over there Mm -hmm. but what illich is trying to get at is it's this it's the one world asymmetrically viewed so Mm -hmm. a time and a place is now part of the male's world part of the female world um in succession and season and rhythm and that's what makes it fun it's not like a harem situation Mm -hmm. that would be almost a silly literal literalization of the phenomenon yeah and and there are there are spaces where women do not go and there are spaces where men do not go but it's not univocal across cultures and as he'll go on to say um it's in relation to a work of a home um we'll get more into Mm -hmm. that but basically there's always a unity in this so if you think about the sickle and the scythe the point is they're both doing the agricultural work, right? So mm-hmm. there's a unity even in the difference of the worlds. So uh, one of the examples of that is on page 93. Um, 
we've we've read this in a in a past podcast. I read it because I really liked it. Um, but it's uh, his example of the Serbian peasant telling how haying had been done a generation back. He described gathering, loading, and storing hay as if the work had been a ballet in which men and women each danced their appropriate parts. Um, and now, while he spoke, we were watching how things were done now. Haymaking had turned into a unisex job under workers' control, which any hired hand could do. With a mixture of sadness and pride, the old man looked at the young woman who was driving the tractor of the village commune. The gender that disappears on a tractor had adapted to ever new conditions over millennia. Um, so, so that's an example that he he gives of. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like the sickle and the the scythe. Mm-hmm. You're together doing the same work, but there's no competition. It's a, a dance. You're completing something uh, together, and and perhaps you could have the roles reversed. Totally. Um, yeah, he makes a bunch of examples about mm-hmm. how, like, down the river, it's the other way around. But it's not like a. But the point is, it's a. In, he always says that gender creates its enclosed world. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways that Illich keeps saying you can recognize a culture is that there's something appropriate to these men and these women, right? As opposed to something like what we do now, which is like we recognize a culture because of the kind of spice they put in their food or whatever. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think this goes back to an earlier conversation that we were having about how it's possible to construct multiple fitting worlds. Totally. So, um, because God is best displayed in an infinity of, of creatures. Well, and well, and multiplicity of creatures, (laughs) multiplicity of creatures and diversity of ways, but that doesn't mean that you can't get it wrong. Um, there can be unfitting ways of constructing the world. And that would be my main critique of village in general. He doesn't really seem to point out ever that you could do this in a way that's bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um, His only badness seems to be like from anyone telling anyone what to do he has like this underlying very childish like maybe it's just an american thing i don't know but very like whenever a bad guy appears in illich's work just because he's telling someone what to do even if the person he's telling someone's telling to do something is in fact doing something abhorrent that he should probably stop i just got the impression that anything that he didn't deem as like natural local was the bad guy and it didn't it, it seemed like it didn't really cross his mind that like Perhaps, perhaps what was there was not good. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps you could do this wrong. But going back to the the image of uh, the the dance and how you can construct this, um, just like in in architecture, you have to uh, follow the the rules of physics. So there's a certain fittingness in the tools that you use and the things that, um, yeah, the things that you use to build this house. But there doesn't have to be a singular way of doing it. And I think it's true with the dance of the genders because there's a certain fittingness what happens and certain ways are just going to make a better dance than others yeah for sure i liked just before we go on he says in one valley in the alps both genders use the scythe but she only uses it to cut the fodder and he for the rye here only she touches the knives in the kitchen there both cut the bread but one cuts down and away and the other draws the blade toward the chest there's just a very observant, you know, difference in um, male and female norms of motion. And it just shows that they're not necessarily imitating each other, um, mm-hmm. which is, again, something that we that we know and we feel and happens to us. The only time that I can remember is when at some point in, in like middle school or something, people would say, uh, look at your nails. Have you done, Here, look at your nails. Good. Yeah, so... 
Oh, did I? Oh, I think you did it like a guy. I don't think it's oh, shoot. No, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Girls normally like women this, put their hands out and, and guys. Like this. Are... Yeah, that's what they say. Of course, it, it, it doesn't actually work <laughs> that way. But it was. I mean, presumably comes from some kind of sense that there is a male and female way of doing the same thing. Um, that it actually doesn't apply is whatever. But like <laughs> the sense is that there's a male and female way of doing the same thing. I remember um, I was walking down the street. And I had my son in like a carrier um, mm -hmm. and I like, and I like rested for a sec and I put my hands on my hips and this guy like who's just walking by, I was like, you look like a woman when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh well, yeah, I mean, I'm carrying a baby. So I imagine I'm going through the same like bodily sort of weight uh, on the front of me. Like yeah. <laughs> that's making my like hips hurt or whatever. But then I realized like, no, it was, it was a very feminine like motion. Posture. And I think that it was like, I mean, he was being, um, he's being mean, but were your feelings hurt? No, because I have read this. So I, I knew, <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew that this was just a noble representative of, of a vernacular culture driving by on, in, in Rust Belt, Ohio. And, um, you know, I was the big unisex problem with my, uh, but I mean, he doesn't baby. really go into posture, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's true. It's kind of a weird example. I, so I went to an all girls high school. And for for whatever reason, we decided to do Joseph, an amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, okay. which is basically a, a cast of all men. Yeah, this is always the problem with actually theater generally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so 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 then we had the decision of okay, are we just going to make them sisters? And like this doesn't really work for the right, plot. Right. And so um, yeah, like they all like were 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 dressing as as men, and it becomes really really obvious that like you put a woman in different clothes, and like she does not walk like a man. Yeah, I know. So you guys were doing drag. We were. You guys were. We were. Uh, <laughs> uh, what, what's the word? Troubling the you know. Troubling the gender norms. It's um, so but... wrong. It's so obviously false that that. No, right. That's not the point. I was thinking of of man spreading when you said this because this is like a current. Have you oh heard yeah, this? yeah. It's like I, I don't. Okay, in fairness, I don't read much. So people sometimes are like, "Are you like?" I say things, and they think that I'm aware of like some debate. So I am actually completely unaware of the debate, except for this vague sense that man spreading, which is the the art and act of sitting with your legs wide open, that this has come under some fire. That's right. Within yeah. like somehow like leftist circles, maybe this isn't true. I probably have this totally wrong. No, no, no. Yeah, no. It's 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 true. It's like, like an men, offensive men, way to say. It? Well, it's it, it's like, like taking up more room, <laughs> which is yeah. not comfortable to sit next to. Right. I mean, to me, it just seems like someone being rude. Sure. And like maybe it's a specifically male way of being rude. I think it is, and that, that's what I was wanted to wanted to say is that like. Often what happens is when you think about typical male and female behaviors, um, you think of it in terms of this, like our unisex world in which anything that is resoundingly male seems to be like boisterously like overbearing um, as opposed to just a particular male way of being rude or a particular mm -hmm. female way of being horrible. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, it, like the loss of a, asymmetrical worlds occupying the same space means that it's always like the differences can always become offensive really easily mm -hmm. because they're always 
differences within a, a univocal world within right. one world mm -hmm. so like it's not just you know a bunch of guys sitting it's like sitting in reference to women who are sharing the same world and sitting in the same presumably room i guess yeah. now i'm thinking about how i'm sitting <laughs> anyways let's move on um kind of lost my train of thought sorry gender rent trade crafts well yeah let's 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 go there um yeah, so more examples, and I and I wanted to read a few just because it, it helps move your imagination to understand what the heck he's talking about. He says that primitive life is always built on a set of split tools, and then he gives uh, three different examples in rent, trade, and crafts. So he says on page 95 that traditional rent was frequently paid in a gender-specific way. Mm -hmm. Uh, His example is a little bit further on. Oh, it says you. that um, it says, for instance, Ingmar paid the abbey fifteen days' labor, presenting himself each day with two draft animals, and also he owed one sheep every second year. His wife, and in the case of her death, a maid, delivered five chickens each fall. He's talking. He's getting sources from contracts between peasants and lords. He says the language of these contracts makes it obvious that two irreconcilable competencies are involved in the payment of the rent, and that there is no common denominator uniting them. I think that's two things. I was like, dude, that's all the rent is. That's amazing. <laughs> and maybe it's monthly, but still, fifteen days labor. You got a fifteen day work, you know, situation to to keep your roof over your head. Yeah, this that's is sweet. Awesome, dude. <laughs> A sheep every second year? I mean, man, oh, to be a peasant covered in mud. <laughs> but he says that there's these irreconcilable com competencies. So he's pointing out is the presumption is not just that men and women are occupying different worlds and doing different things, but that they are involved in a productive economy, which what they produce is gendered, right? So, mm -hmm. so you would expect uh, the sheep from the man and the chickens from from the woman because you're you're yeah so so i i think it's just really what he's building up to is a critique of money later he, he goes mm -hmm. on he has another example he says women's products and men's products are clearly distinct church law did not forbid any and all general servile work on feast days this was news to me rather it clearly specified that men were to abstain from the hunt from tree felling from the building of stockades and women from hoeing, shearing lambs, and pruning trees. The two could not produce the surplus to pay the rent interchangeably. Both the product and the exacted service were gender-bound. Uh, and, and presumably, he's also making the point that their labor couldn't simply be referred to as, as labor. So this is like a, again, a sort of a unisex assumption that, you know, the church law could simply say, you know, human beings cease from work. Instead of saying like, okay, women cease doing this, men mm -hmm. cease doing that, that there's always a twofoldness that needs to be addressed in the church law at some point in, in the Middle Ages is recognizing this. And what he seems to be building up to is is a sort of comparison to a a money economy. Um, right. When the – so the, the couple, they're not paying rent in a gendered way. They just become a taxable unit. Um, yeah. And it's just that you, with money, you know, obviously money is a medium of exchange, right? So if you mm -hmm. have, if you're paying your rent in kind, so with things, then that can relate to the world of things, which is governed by gender. Mm -hmm. Once you introduce a money economy, 
Um, and he would probably say something like, well, actually, the money economy is really made possible by the destruction of um, the gendered worlds. But once you introduce a money economy, then you have the ability to pay the same thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe the woman does this, maybe the man does this, but they're both exchanging their labor into something that's sexless, genderless, mm-hmm. which is money. Uh, and so then their relationship of rent, their relationship of uh, producing surplus um, becomes a sexless reality. So there's, it loses the, the world becomes that much less gendered. Um, and that does seem to be true. I mean, if you think about not just the paying of rents, obviously that's sort of, it's a familiar concept in some ways, but also very foreign because, you know, we, we don't think of it as part of productive property. We just think of it as like an apartment or something. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but it does seem to me that, um, he's on the money about money. Nice. Because when we, um, discuss in the first part of this book review, you know, when we discussed, um, the ideal of the society and the way that we measure equality within our industrial capitalist society, we judge it according to money. So we compare wages to find out if we are being equally treated. And so Mm -hmm. it does seem to me like the wage is the mark as it were of what sexless worth looks like. It can be, it's a, it's a number value. Right. Yeah. And then, and then later on, we'll, we'll look at it in more detail, I assume, but he, he points out how the, the focus is not so much on the couple, but on the household. And I think it makes sense that rent is being paid in this way because it's about how men and women in their gender domains are contributing to the survival uh, and the flourishing of this household. And so that's how you would offer rent back to the Lord. Right. So it's always seen in this way of like, well, what am I, yeah, what am I like actually contributing to our subsistence? Yeah. And he says the same thing about trade. Um, and he's really going all sorts of places all around the world. <laughs> so I'm just trusting him on all this. Um, it says, as with rent, so trade can have gender. And the trader is not always the man. Um, nor is there much substance to the belief that women trade in the village square and men roam afar. In Malaysia, the Western Sahel and the non-Hispanic Caribbean, Caribbean, it is the woman it is the women who conduct the household's activities and the pattern is deeply ingrained. The trade is based on the women's contacts with kin and men have no chance to break into their circuits. Whether the trade is in pottery or jewelry, the woman is the one who deals with distant villages while the man takes care of the house. He then says, to keep the husband in the home, a woman trader might force a second wife on him under the threat that otherwise she would leave him, a threat that even today holds good in Senegal. The man knows what that what she trades, no one would buy from him, and that her income is needed for the house. Like rent, trade goods also have gender. In northern Burma, no one in his right mind would buy jewelry in the market from a man. It would undoubtedly be fake for the tourist. Um, I liked this because... Just the comparison to money. So in the footnote, he says a husband can never tamper with his wife's trading business in the way he can lay claim to the money she brings home. Mm. So one of the consequences, and I think there's something in in the biblical literature here too, when it describes the ideal wife at the end of Proverbs. 
I'm going to say Proverbs. It talks about her making deals in the marketplace, oh, yeah, her spinning, right. <laughs> um, making clothes, um, bringing in goods to a household and basically managing a household economy. Uh, and it's praising this as the sort of ideal, ideal wife. One of the things that I think is exciting about it is the idea of this lack of any final exchange of that reality into a unisex reality. So what I mean is when the work is one of trade done by a woman in a way that there isn't like male interference, um, it really does have at some point Illich talks about awe over otherness as the reaction mm -hmm. of the genders within a gendered world. It does seem to me like in the Bible, that's what's happening. It's like a man in awe of like a mm -hmm. woman doing something that he's not He's not comparing to anything else. He's just mm -hmm. saying, look at her go. This is this is wonderful. Or I guess another way of, of putting it, it's not like, oh, here's like these useful things that this woman can do to serve me. It's like this is the gender domain and like she's the most excellent at this. Yeah. Like she out of competition with other females. With other women, yeah. Yeah. Which is how the Bible describes like in Song of Songs, it's always like, you know, like a like a lily among brambles is my beloved among among women. Mm -hmm. and so there's a sense of like the superiority of like w what stands out is not um like the the human i don't even know what that look like what stands out is like um she is the best of her kind mm -hmm. you know he's the best of his kind um that seems to be a kind of value that we don't really seem to have as much at least i don't know in talking with people about their romances i've very rarely heard someone be like he's the best of men she's the best of women. Although they probably feel that somewhere, right? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> but that exchange into money, right? So the, um, you know, he's describing a culture where, okay, yeah, if you did all that, but at the end of the day, it was exchanged for money, then the worth of it is measured in terms of a reality that the man can compete with or vice versa, the woman can compete with. Right. So if in that end of Proverbs and the praise of the perfect wife, he has said, and when it's all said and done, she comes back with $300 for the cash fund or whatever, there would be a letdown in the romance of it, right? Yeah. Because he would be like, well, maybe he could have made $400 doing something else. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to point to this like exchangeability of money is, you know, goes right alongside hand in hand with the exchangeability that comes with getting rid of an asymmetrical, unexchangeable gendered world. world. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the research that he's doing, but it does make sense to me, uh, at least in this situation, when he's saying that trade is based on the woman's contacts with kin, men have no chance to break into their circuits. Like, yeah, I could see that being a really tight circuit. <laughs> totally. Although, you know, it's horrible. You think about like MLMs today, like multi-level marketing schemes where like, oh, <laughs> I'm just saying like the women's sort of superiority Hi, of trade. I haven't talked to you in two years. <laughs> okay. But imagine if a guy were to get into Lula Rose or um, what's the other one that sells like makeup, Arbonne or something. I don't know. Okay. Is it Mary Kay one? Yeah. But yeah. imagine a guy were to like contact another guy and be like, hey man. I haven't talked to you in two years, <laughs> but this lotion has changed my life. And, you know, I just felt like it was time to reach out. I mean, it would be insane. Like, like, unfortunately, I think it's only in our like weird vices that we still have like a real sense of like, uh, that is something only women do. Well, I mean, not, <laughs> it's not, it's not only there, but 
I, I think the point is that like the you can never you can never bring the critique of the modern world all the way to its end because you can't actually destroy the gender no, world. They're still there, even uh, yeah vestiges or even in their vices. Even in that. the horrible simony of using your holy friendships for the sake of selling, you know, pomegranate juice or whatever, <laughs> you, you are still... That's what I buy from my friends. Reminding <laughs> people of the gendered world from which we have departed. Incredible. Hopeful, maybe. Sweet. Uh, so there was one last example from this, uh, which is the example of the guild, which I thought was really cool. Um, so a couple of recent studies on medieval trades have made much of the fact that many guilds allowed women to become masters. The silk spinning and weaving guild in 14th century Cologne was made up solely of women. Um, but more surprisingly, we find women in guilds that were decidedly men's domains. In one case, a woman headed a 14th century smithy, which had two dozen workers with hand a heavy uh, investment in water mill driven hammers um but he is pretty quick to point out after that like you could take the information and go like oh like how how progressive um like they're they're mm -hmm. living in this unisex world together mm -hmm. uh not so says illich he says but such women were the widows of guild members and by being in the guild they could keep the shop and the family they were appointed the shop's guardians as their men had been before them. But to jump from evidence of this guardianship of town or family interests to a conclusion that women worked iron or side by side with the apprentices in competition with them would be ludicrous. Uh, I thought this was a really great example because it shows how we can be so anachronistic. We can just take our assumptions of the modern world and read them into the past. Yeah. So you might look on this and assume that they're just living in a genderless world and in fact that's not what's really going on um but again it's that example of a space being occupied by men and women but doing it in different ways in a way that's not competitive yeah but also showing that it's not exclusive like there are cases in which one can occupy the other world and those two are judged by the gendered worlds so i think again it's not it is a human construction, which means it's the it's the product of our freedom. We are able to build it. We are able to break it. We are able we are able to change it. Not easily, but it's not the case that there's like this sort of here are the laws and men shall be the only masters here. It's like there's always there's always exceptions because it's always being created. Mm -hmm. It'd be almost like reading like I don't know. <coughs> the book of judges and then presuming that because like Deborah was a judge when Israel was in a time of crisis, that this represented a beginning point of like a progression to like a future in which female and males both held like a kind of political office in Israel. Mm -hmm. It would, it would mistake our world as the inevitable arrival point of all of history, which is right. like, aren't we all just progressing to our own unisex capitalistic industrial world? Mm -hmm. It must be happening. It's like, well, no, there's exceptions that, and there's exceptions and sort of transgressions of gender boundaries that aren't somehow predictive of a liberal modernity, mm -hmm. which I think is cool. And, and there's even a place for that, too, and Illich talks about that later on. Sorry. We'll forgive you this time. <laughs> Stupid phone. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there is place for the exception. There is place for 
the transgression and Deborah's a great example of this. Um, and it's not because she's trying to defy the established order. Yeah. Um, it's because she's pointing out a failure. Yeah. Uh, really, she's pointing out a failure of men um, who are too afraid to stand up against the enemy. And so God raises up a woman to be a judge and essentially like cast judgment on men and shame them into acting courageously. Totally. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think, well, this is one of the things that I have been picking up about this and what I like about Illich's take on what's going on in the pre-modern world is that there are gendered domains, but the line between them is flexible and it changes. And there's ways of uh, making exceptions and transgressing those boundaries in a way that doesn't actually undermine the other sex. Like what Deborah is doing mm-hmm. is is not like, trying to usurp yeah. the male domain. What yeah. she's doing is she's, she's being a sign <laughs> to to make men better. Yeah, right. And I think this is one of the big like letdowns of most contemporary gender studies is that whenever they find a exception or a transgression, they immediately presume that it's mm-hmm. ordered towards the destruction of the world that it's in. Um, and it's just a really stupid assumption. Um, and it also like the problem with it is similar to a problem with Butler. It's like, well, if it's the case that gender is just arbitrarily constructed for the sake of the powerful has nothing to do with peace, um, then it's transgression is not interesting. And at some level it's transgression isn't even metaphysically possible because it's, there's no real transgression happening. It's just a power move. Yeah. just another power move. But if the categories are real, if we're really constructing worlds on the basis of like a reality of sexual difference is real, then transgression really is transgression. Mm-hmm. Then, um, you know, blurring a line really is blurring a line or crossing over to a gender domain to the other um, gender is a effective reality. Mm-hmm. And you can see this. It's like we don't get more colorful and transgressive over time as our world becomes more and more unisex. We just get more beige because there's no transgression to be had if in Mm -hmm. fact we're all just human bodies that happen to have some like interesting reproductive difference glossed over us or we just have to become more extreme in our transgression because it's not obvious enough yeah yeah these things don't have the same kind of meaning so we have to push even further yeah in order to bring about the same effect Or, or a different one um before we move on to the the next uh and final bit really in this chapter i thought it'd be worth talking about a modern example of where we see men and women occupying the same space but with different tools um and doing it in different ways and that would be women's sports those yeah (laughs) tell me about those (laughs) um so i mean that's an obvious place where both men and women can play basketball yeah. Um but it's it's more fun. <laughs> it's more fun when you do it within the gender domain when you have competition against your sex. Um and even the tools are different, right? Mm-hmm. So the basketball is a lot smaller. Yeah. Um the hoop is lower. The rules are a little different too, right? Like there's different times for like how long you can be in the zone. Sorry, reaching that... way back to some basketball. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember 
yeah, I grade think school again. Yeah. Like, what were those rules? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I know, yeah, I know that the tools are slightly different. The rules are slightly different and it's to foster competition within the sex. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's a way you could look at sports and then just presume, and I think this does happen at times, but you could presume that, well, it's just, that's just another example of like a unisex reality, like sport. Mm-hmm. And then there's like a male version and a female version of it. So we're not really dealing with gendered worlds, but, but I would, I would disagree a little bit because it seems like while that's definitely happened, the actual, even the motivations in playing right. sport are totally. different. Like we're not doing the same things when we play sport. Like males are obviously involved in like a, a sort of death battle competition <laughs> uh, with sports where they want so desperately to be admired. I mean, one of the critiques of, I mean, it's silly. It's a critique of women's sports but from the perspective of male sports, presuming mm-hmm. that, presuming that the unisex sport is real, mm-hmm. um, which is like, well, they're not as, they're not as fun to watch. And I think that's quite true because mm-hmm. what male sports is, is for the sake of the male ego, like for the, for the fragile male, male ego yeah. that needs competition <laughs> to affirm itself. I mean this. Like, I'm not, no, it's I'm, meant to be, it's meant to be yeah. watched. Yeah. It's meant to be watched. I mean, that's why we do it. Like, like the idea of like, I just want to play, you know, a nice basketball game for the, the spirit and community of it. I know it just sounds like kind of boring. I'm not saying that's what girls do. I think there's real competition. But yeah, I'm I mean, saying there's, like, there's real competition, but definitely the motivations are different. It's not like, it's not like, man, like I really, I, I want to play field hockey really well so I can climb the social ladder. Totally. That, that's, that's actually a wild thought. It's not a, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a thing, but you, I mean, you do, you do climb the social ladder if you go to an all girls school, sure. if you were on the volleyball team, mm-hmm. it gets the most money. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's social world climbing within the gender domain, but it's not like I need to do that for the sake of the opposite sex, Sure, which is definitely the case for men. That's to be so, yeah. So yeah, the motivations are, are different. The tools are different and doing the same thing, but in a different way, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it just seems to be better. Word. All right. All right, moving on. Um, he's got a bit on wedlock that I think I just disagree with. Um, not his fault. He was never married. But he has this theory that... Um, that marriage underwent a fundamental change that sort of led to a preliminary stage towards a unisex world where he says what had been principally a ceremony um, to tie together two families related by complex lines of kinship became the event by which two individuals were joined for life in the new economic unit of the couple, an entity that can be taxed. Um, so he's being very cynical here in saying that like as marriage became more uh, individualist in the sense of like mm-hmm. being for love, being the un- unity of two people, um, that this was somehow the death of like or, or the beginning of, of the death of the gendered worlds. Um, he go- And as some example for this, he says the uh, – he points to rents changing 
to monetary rents. So rents were, uh, it's true that even into the 19th century, work on the Lord's Manor um, or on public roads was levied by gender, but rent was increasingly monetized. Local currencies were replaced by the modern state's money, and the conjugal couple proved itself as a flexible, productive unit superior to any previous form of household. Um, but he says that he says that it still continued to rely on gender um, in its actual life as a household. Um, mm -hmm. He's just arguing that there's a certain unisex vision from a centralized authority of families um, that that were being taxed money, and that this led to a sort of um, creation of um, a sort of proto unisex world where it's not actually because gender is still operative in the actual life of all the households, but it is. It's sort of on its way. I think that um, this is just one of these, maybe it's just a blind spot in Illich that you can get kind of carried away within the vision of the gendered world where you don't realize that marriage is a meeting point of the two and a genuinely common life. Mm-hmm. So that you are involved in something that is that can be referred to, um, but that in referring to it as a family um, is not necessarily to destroy what that family is composed of, um, which mm -hmm. is of man and woman, you know, in a in a productive household. And so I just think he's, I don't know, maybe it's just a little bit of a jump to say that because marriage became more individual gendered worlds sort of suffered as a result. seems to me like you can have the monetization of a society quite without the, um, this kind of marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I just see in Illich kind of discounting of the sacramental order in general. I know that we want to save that for yeah. later, but the same thing comes up when he talks about confession. Like I, I'm not very convinced that you believe that grace is a thing or like yeah. you were saying, like that marriage, this meeting place can actually take on a real unity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I th and I think there's a way that you could describe what's going on as a perfection of the gendered worlds because the whole mm -hmm. dance that he describes in um, a, sort of a common life with common tasks that were nevertheless asymmetrically achieved by men and women seems to reach a certain height when a single man and a single woman decide to engage in a common task together, as it were, representing their sex, yeah, uh, or rather representing the, uh, their gender, I guess he would say. Um, I guess he doesn't really have a, a sense of the gender domains being for one sure, another. Yeah. Like he, he's, he really emphasizes the fact that you can't totalize the other sphere, that you can't actually get inside it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an extent where you will never know or understand the other, um, but he misses that the reason the other is there is is for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the difference is, is always a difference for. Like if I wake mm -hmm. up and find myself with a particular set of powers, it's because there are others that are served by those powers. I mean, this is the fundamentally Christian vision of power, period, that it's always for the weak. It's always for the other. Yeah. Um, justice is to orient all power towards the other. And I agree that he does seem to have a certain 
sense of loneliness within um, the gender domains. Like he, he quotes sort of approvingly uh, a tribe that thinks that men and women have no actual relationship except somehow through the moon. Oh. Um, <laughs> and that seems to be like a, um, maybe a sort of uh, token of the, of the overall problem that there is a way you can describe male and female as so independent as to make them as sort of two separate species that um, meet on occasion for some reason, but would really do quite fine without the other, mm-hmm. which his very evidence obviously wars against. He doesn't, he yeah. can't really <laughs> think that at the end of the day, because um, what he's describing is worlds where what strikes me most is how profoundly men and women need each other. Yeah. I mean, it's our world in which we really don't need each other Mm -hmm. except for reproduction. Like it all narrows down to reproduction. Like somehow we just need women to have ovums and we need men for sperm. But if we could get rid of that necessity, we probably would. And we're working on it. Yeah. We're definitely working on it. (laughs) You know, so that's the world in which like we can actually just separate. Um, Mm -hmm. But these worlds he's describing. Yeah. Like like you're constantly, like you're constantly reminded over and over again of your like symbolic need for the other Um, because you, yeah. Whenever you're completing just a, a normal task you're reminded of the need for the other and i I wonder if this is the way that um you could critique constructions of the gendered world because again that was my frustration reading the book because he just kind of seems to speak of everything in the past in glowing terms yeah um but yeah i mean people people have constructed gendered worlds that are not for each other sure i think that's where yeah where, where we're frustrated and we think that well if they're not for each other then they have to be destroyed Right. Um, but maybe it just needs to be reconstructed. Yeah. Like, like how is what is specifically male intrinsically for female and what is intrinsically specifically female mm-hmm. for, for what, what male lacks? I mean, there's a Christian notion of this, right? That we make up for what is lacking in each other. And ultimately that has this whole Christological dimension that we make up what is lacking in, in the suffering and death of Christ. Um, and it seems like that is what is actually spreading within the pre-Christian world as it becomes more and more Christian totally. is this sense of, okay, well now power is supposed to be for the other. Now difference is for the other. Now, I mean, existence is for, that's like a sort of Ratzingerian way of talking about it. Existence dash four. <laughs> um, but I think that's real. I think that's really a good way to talk about the Christian change in the universe. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, the orientation of the the gendered world is not about domination or power mm-hmm. or wealth. It's about service. Um, which maintain which man- maintains the distinctions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a like because men yeah. and women retain the powers that they they do. Right. Um, the question is not how can we put them on absolutely equal footing. It's how can I use what I have for the other. Yeah, no, it's one of the saddest parts about our intrinsically sexist society is that as women become able to be more and more like men, according to the ideal of the capitalist society, they also become useless to other men. It's like, okay, so we're all totally equal. Why exactly do I need you around? Mm-hmm. And so we actually end up in a full circle to like the sexism of like Augustine, who says sort of, I think very unref- unreflectively, he's like, 
why did God create a, a woman to be um, man's helpmate? He says, well, it must have only been for reproduction because anything else, a man would have been way better. Like <laughs> <laughs> moving stuff, talking would have been way better. It's a funny kind of sexism because it's actually, I think, coming from a gendered world. He's sort of, mm -hmm. like, he can't. Yeah, anyways, but, well, well, I think but it would come I, full circle, I think. Yeah. But to go back to the Augustine example, I think that's that's helpful because you can look back at, at Augustine, right? Uh, so like a part of the church's history, and here you have this great theologian saying something like this. And I think it's easy to forget that what Christianity is doing is being leaven in society. Um, and as the gendered worlds are being transformed in the way that we just move and conceive of the other of being for another that takes time throughout the generations right christianity is entering into a pagan world and seeking to transform it it doesn't happen immediately um and it takes a long time for those things to change and mm -hmm. so that's part of what i'm I'm seeing and i i really don't think that i'm making excuses for the church or making excuses for those theologians because that's that's what i do see in the church's history. Um, and I think especially uh, with religious life, with um, for women, uh, you you see that, yeah, the, the women's gendered world genuinely changes and the way that men conceive of women genuinely changes. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that, that taking a long time time to do so uh is a sign of failure i think it's just a sign of how cultures work yeah no i think you're right and the only way that we've able been able to sort of warp speed our supposed equality is because it's a if it is right it's a destructive act it's like we're equal because we no longer have dignity as male or as female but only as economic unit mm -hmm. um, chapter so five speaking well Speaking yeah. of economic unit, there's just a, a helpful summary uh, that I think will kind of bring us into the next section. This is on 103. Um, he says, then quite abruptly during the 19th century, the gendered assignment of household tasks was replaced by economic division of wage and shadow work. So just to bring back that image from last time, uh, discriminatingly assigned according to the newly discovered sexual characteristics of the consorts. Uh yeah, I don't really have anything to say about that. It was just a really nice summary. Yeah, it says the age of broken gender had served in Europe as a transition um, from vernacular subsistence to economic sex. So he's talking about that broken gender as where there is a sort of formal uh, unisex relation between church authority and the family conceived of not as a male or female world, but as some third thing. But within that family, you have still the persistence of the gendered world. That's his sort of vision um, uh, for like 500 years. That's what was going on. And then within the rise of modernity, you had the kind of final destructive act in which um, not simply the family unit, but in fact, everyone, every individual becomes um, removed from the genderless world and brought into a, a unisex world. Chapter five. This is the best chapter. Oh yeah, because we because talk about spime. It. Oh yeah, spime. <laughs> space time. Yep, spime. Gendered space and gendered time. Yeah. So. So so he, 
he begins by saying that gender is vernacular. Um, yeah, I'm just going to read this too, the yeah. first paragraph. Gender is vernacular. It is both as tough and adaptable, as precarious and vulnerable as vernacular speech. As happens with the latter, gender is obliterated by education and its existence is soon forgotten or even denied. Thus, many people today have lost the ability to remember or even imagine either gender or vernacular speech. For the high school graduate, his parents' vernacular has become a substandard dialect of the mother tongue he has been taught. For the daughter who returns to rural Mexico, equipped with her university degree, the gender of her old mother can easily appear as a bondage that she has escaped. And he gives a specific example later on. Um, I'm not exactly sure where where it is where he he's talking about the way that uh, the gender domains worked. Uh, there was even a difference in language and a difference in speech. Um, totally, and that's not really comprehensible to us today because it doesn't really happen. It's been erased. And I think that's what he's getting at in that opening paragraph. Yeah, I mean, really, I just saw this chapter as diving more into the same um, kind of use of examples mm -hmm. um, to show that we don't have the same kind of world anymore um, with the specific reference to, like, the way that space becomes separate um, and sexual or gendered, I guess. Um, so he says that... I like this on 108. He's talking about a um, he's talking about a book in which they're describing the slaughtering of a pig in a yeah. French village. <laughs> it says only the woman can choose which animal will be slaughtered, addressing it as Monsieur. <laughs> but the man must set the day for the slaughter. They go through dozens of appointed steps as of dancing a minuet. Women prepare the sausage and men salt the lard. But while in Minot, only women beyond their menopause can pick up salted pork from the larder, a few miles down the road, not even they may trespass into this male space. Each village village does its own dance to the tune of its own regional music. And I think this is, again, it's what we've said, but it, it takes on special resonance when we consider like the rise of liberal modernity as the construction of nation states that happened in and through the destruction of regional difference. Right. It's mm -hmm. like Illich is actually just lending a specific causal um, sort of point of regional difference. Like what is actually making regional difference? Well, it's gender, right? It's the fact that we're never doing things the same way. We're always in a dialogue with something that we're not. And so that we're always producing difference. And I think that's really cool because sometimes mm -hmm. we just, male and female is a reproductive reality, but if, what Illich is saying is true. It's not just that we reproduce children. It's that we, we are productive in like world building. Mm -hmm. um, if you imagine, if you will, an all male world, you can, or an all female world, you can, you can see, I think intuitively how you would start to do the same thing. Like you would figure out what works for what you need. And then tradition, the handing on of what was before would become very homogenous. Like we do the same things. We do what works and it goes on like this and mm -hmm. there's no spice there's no life there's no diversity there's no rhythm mm -hmm. um whereas once you're up against something that isn't you then you're always in a state of reacting to something that you don't quite understand mm -hmm. again awe in the face of otherness becomes a 
So you can see how the maintenance of gendered world is, worlds is productive of regional difference. Whereas now, of course, we don't have regional difference, right. uh, at least not in America. Um, yeah, it really is upsetting how you can go from one end to the other country and then just Taco Bells all the way through. You're in the same place. I mean, if you get off the roads, you hear the hear the voices. Um, and we always have these sort of token differences like, you know, Pittsburgh. We say yins instead of y'all or something. So but weird. if you can list the differences and like on your hand, then they're dead right like that's yeah. sort of the problem so leftover the vestiges of regional difference yeah but you can see well what, what liberal modernity does in the rise of nation states like in the construction of um the nation of france under napoleon as a military reality it happens because of a universal education it mm -hmm. happens because of an actual destruction of language variations of dialects yep. mm -hmm. um, so there's one french language there's one french education um, there's one French identity, uh, and, and French the Frenchman is actually suddenly evaluated as the primary identity. It's mm -hmm. it's um, it's over. Yeah, I remember above. learning this for the first time, and yeah, it blew my mind. Like yeah. I, didn't, I didn't. We really produced these things. I mean, mm -hmm. America, it all feels very natural because we started our country like 300 yeah. years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we don't really see the destructive elements until sometimes we get a little bit worried about what we did with like the Native Americans or something. Yeah, uh, but. <laughs> In Europe, it's just very obvious. You can point to then and now, and mm -hmm. the difference between then and now is the construction of these things we call nations through the destruction of regional difference. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the point is not to say that well, – well, the point is simply to say that I think what Illich does, what Illich adds to a general um, distaste for the destructive um, sort of liberal planning of modernity – is to critique it of a certain destruction of um, the gendered worlds mm -hmm. as well. And almost necessarily. I was reading a good, uh, there's a couple um, dissertations people have written that, that point this out, that like in the construction of the American nation, um, there's a deliberate attempt at androgyny as like, a, uh, the invention, even before like women could vote, the invention of a citizen as a non-sexed uh, or, or a non-gendered thing that is really the predominant, the, the most important thing that you are. So we're all citizens mm -hmm. of this country. Um, and how nations used um, images of the androgen to symbolize this. Like it's really quite literal. The kind of collapsing of sexual difference into this thing called the citizen was, was something that we actually did in art and in politics. Mm -hmm. um, and so we don't, yeah. Uh, so it is a, the destruction of, of gender difference is a, is a political act um, that I do think at the end of the day creates a homogenous culture and makes a people who are more available to, to rule, to the rule of positive law, because they can all be more easily understood as some one thing as opposed to two worlds that are in dialogue with each other. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the rest of this chapter is... Uh, well, a, a big part is talking about the domus or house as the subject of history, and we've touched on that already, so maybe we don't need to go into great detail about that. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, but it, it seemed like kind of the central power that was like moving things in in society was the household and it wasn't the individual um and it wasn't necessarily the couple yeah either and his point is that what you have is subsistence living like which means Mm -hmm. that your relation to the land was such that you were you had productive property and you were trying to live off of it you owned something and you were trying to use it to live and so your relationship had to be to a body, a social body that's surviving together. Like that's the common act is mm-hmm. that we're all doing what it takes, um, which is not what modernity does because we translate everything into money, which becomes our means of survival, which is, which is a sexless reality. So I don't, mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, it is a social act, but it's certainly not an act I do with the people like around me within a particular community of, of kin. Um, right. or it need not be that. And yeah. And that seems obvious. And I think there's a lot of romanticism within Catholicism generally that they, that we, we long for this somehow, right? The, the cottage industry yeah, <laughs> where, we're, where our homes are something besides like the place where we sleep, um, at night, but they actually have something productive about them. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he talks about, it's on 122, uh, kind of speak of cottage life, like in in the gendered worlds, um, woman's unique role in making the house a home. Uh, Yes, a rare moment of softness from Illich here. Yeah, where is that? It's the first pair, well, I mean, I have all sorts of little hearts that I drew around and can <laughs> as the uh 122 in the top um he says as the warp this is a uh uh weaving metaphor ah. as a warp runs on and on lengthwise in the fabric and the woof crisscrosses <laughs> it at right angles to tie the threads together so the actions that engender the home the actions that engender life space are necessarily different depending on whether they leave traces from men or traces from women both men and women make themselves at home through every move, but for women who can engender the unbroken succession of life, phenomenologically, the relationship to space takes on special mm-hmm. significance. The culture may be matriarchal or patriarchal, the greater share of power in the hands of women or men, but only for women does to live and to dwell mean to engender bodies, to leave behind a trail of new life. In one culture, men may build shelters, make fences, or terrace a hill, and in another, these tasks are assigned to women. But only from women does bodily life come into the world. No matter how the local mythology depicts the creator of the world as mother, father, or androgen, no matter whose name the children carry, mothers, fathers, or uncles, the special space and the time that corresponds to it that sets the home apart from nest and garage is engendered only by women because it is they who bear living bodies. So I think that goes back to our uh, assertion, really, that the reason that modernity seems irredeemably sexist is because women have babies. Because mm-hmm. I think here Illich actually lays it out in a kind of maybe obscure way, but it does seem to be there that because women have something particular about them, namely that they make homes in the unique way of making new life mm-hmm. um, within themselves, that they make homes because they are homes for people in a way that um, men can't be. Um, 
Yeah, he writes in the next paragraph, um, unisex architecture is necessarily male sexist, as is the unisex ticking of watches. Such designs place women in their flesh and rhythms in double jeopardy. Their potential contribution to homemaking is frustrated, and they are yanked out of their proper gender context. In both respects, they suffer more than men. I mean, it might seem a little <laughs> extreme, the unisex ticking of watches. Mm. Um, I'm wearing oppression on my wrist. <laughs> no. Um, but I, I, I think what he's pointing out is um, uh, something that I, I've thought about in a more like symbolic uh, sense. Like the, I, I think this is what he's getting at with um, time, like the way that men and women um, embody time is different because women embody time in a way that's like physically seasonal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, our bodies have a cycle to them. And so like we have by nature a more cyclical experience of time and that's not something that men uh, have. And so I think he's kind of connecting it to like a unisex ticking of uh, a watch where just every second just goes on and on and on. There's no change. Um, it doesn't really account for a more, yeah, uh, seasonal, cyclical experience of time, which women live and highlight. Yeah, and, and I think you can see this in the crisis of, like, women and the need for maternity leave mm -hmm. um, or abortion considered as a need um, that it, it, the time world of, of America is fit for men but not for women. Um, yeah, and it does seem in the Christian spiritual life, there's this, like, you know, Edith Stein looks at all this sort of thing and says, well, if there are these differences in man and woman, it's because they're for the other to rise mm -hmm. to the full stature of Christ. Um, and it does seem that in the Christian life, women teach men about hope for the resurrection and men teach women about the reality of death, you know, because if I could dare claim a vice to your uh, sex. Um, it's uh, maybe, I don't know a word for it exactly, but it's like a contentment um, that this life actually has a kind of self-sufficiency to it um, because you have these seasons, things come back around again, you have children, you have a certain like completion of purpose in um Mm -hmm. in yeah, being it, a mother and bearing life in raising life it's kind like, of like a cyclical mm -hmm. fashion turning back in on yourself and within your own home and world and contentment there right and so when you look at men there's a lesson being taught to women because men don't have that but by not having that death is very real to men so time has a linear sense in that it's you know we don't we don't have this return within ourselves we go forward until we die mm -hmm. and so for us it's always on the horizon with no chance of return um but i think that if you're ever going to understand the cross and the resurrection you would have to have both the male and the female perspective of time namely that it is something that ends and it's something that never ends like yeah we die and we rise again. Okay, I I definitely want to go on this tangent because this is something that I've I've thought about a lot. I mean, you see this historically. So like the pagan notion of time is dominated by the feminine. Mm -hmm. Time is a cycle. 
yeah. and yeah. the world is just turned over and over and over again. Yeah. Death to life and life to death. Totally. Um, and so there's a certain like hopelessness about yeah. that and a Fate. certain enclosed world that you can't rise above just because life is on repeat <laughs> yeah, sure. forever and ever. Uh, and now we've run to the absolute opposite extreme. Like we have a male dominated notion of time. It's, it's just progress, progress, progress for an ever and ever. We're going to what? Mars, baby. <laughs> and after Mars, Neptune. Um, but yeah, like both of these are, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just really fascinating to see historically that people's concept of time is so different. Oh, yeah. um, because I mean, we really do think of time like, oh, time. Yes. Ticking watches. That's yeah. what it means but no 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 these are just devices that we've used so we can measure change but and to keep trains on schedule that's actually why we invented them well, anyways that's um, for my that's for my time as a product of of industrial capitalism essay it's not for now but i mean it's 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 true that um yeah they're just like an inventions for us to measure change in a particular way but that's yeah. like time is not actually like the second ticking by yeah no, um totally. and so what i see in what christianity does um is kind of unite those two perspectives so if you could think of a line um that's like pointing up towards progress and then you think of uh, a, a circle as like this this cycle when you l unite them together like you get a spiral mm -hmm. that's going up yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, or the opposite or down yeah. <laughs> or down and that's i mean that's precisely that's the genius of augustine in the city of god in the city of man yeah like his notion of of time seems to me exactly that that history is the playing out of uh, people a society namely the the church um humanity like spiraling up or spiraling down mm -hmm. and this is what time is and this is part of what men and women are able to reveal to each other and our different uh yeah embodiments of yeah reality yeah. walter ong is a guy who wrote a book okay title which i forget but he makes the claim and it seems to be somewhat right that the male is um a principle of differentiation um and like a break because he roots it in embryology that basically the the male fetus within the womb is surrounded by a feminine environment that is dangerous to him as male like he's producing his own contrary sort of hormonal mm. world reality body um and this continues from the embryological stage into the early childhood where um by necessity the male child is within a feminine world i mean the womb sort of is maintained he's still mm -hmm. entirely dependent on on the mother and so he has this sort of um fragile relationship um to himself where he has to affirm that he has in fact um that he is in fact not his mother that he's in fact you know broken with her to be himself in a way that doesn't seem to plague um females of i mean he, he's making an argument like from biology so he says this is true of like birds and stuff but mm -hmm does seem to be apparent in in humans that you know the female of the species seems less concerned with like proving herself as female which is why you can see like yeah. women are very comfortable to be tomboys but no male is comfortable to be we don't even have a word for it that's, yeah that's what shows you, right <laughs> like 
Um, and so people will talk about this as if it's like something like that we need to eradicate because they don't believe in real difference. So if mm-hmm. women should be tomboys, men are envious of women's ability. And so they want that for themselves, which mm-hmm. is, of course, everything that Illich has been talking about. But you can see in this in this argument that there are sort of, again, two modes of um, having identity, both of which are legitimate but different and teach the other person. So like when I said contentment is like a, a vice of women, I think this is sort of in the back of my head that it's like to belong so thoroughly to your environment that there's no necessity of a break does mm-hmm. seem to be like a certain temptation. Yeah. Well, I I've, then, I've conceived of the same thing, but in a, in a different way. Um, but I think it's kind of saying similar things. Maybe it can manifest in contentment. Um, or another way that I see women manifesting a particular vice is by like, drawing all things like to themselves mm. as an orbit. Sure. Um, so, I mean, if we go back to like our original parents and what they're doing in the beginning is a move to become like gods, I think that men and women do this in different ways Mm. i think the male vice the male tendency is to dominate others and shove them to the ground and raise yourself up to be big by making others small Mm -hmm. and i i think that the general female way of doing this is becoming like an object of worship and just drawing all things and manipulate manipulation around her Mm, yeah that seems to be what instagram is (laughs) (laughs) Which is a prototypically female domain, mm-hmm. as I understand it. I mean, I haven't checked on the stats. I left it. I, I got out. Got out of Instagram. Twitter is probably the male domain because it's like right. Um, <laughs> it's like fragile egos competing with just um, yelling at each other. Yeah, and you do see a sort of the male voice is the norm. So like women are rewarded on Twitter insofar as they can kind of emulate the like brash very concerned with social issues and mm-hmm. cursing tweets those are like prime stuff yeah the more power moves you can make the better the mm-hmm. more attention you get whereas on instagram you're called an influencer oh mm. <laughs> yes yes i've heard of this um so anyways that's more than you ever needed to know you ever needed to know about sexual difference but um uh, well, we can just move on to, um, unless we had anything more to say about the home, like I think we talked about that earlier. He, he talks later on about language at the end of this. Hey, that's almost a connection to what we were just saying. Okay, but wait, before we do that, he has gender and the grasp of reality. Did we miss that, that or am I jumping? 127? Uh... It has my favorite stuff in it. Oh, yeah. You Wasn't had that your on favorite part, this is my favorite part. 128 and 127 yeah um so the grasp of reality he talks a little bit about infants um Mm -hmm. he says the mother's eyes which look differently at a girl and a boy definitely true from my experience anyways already impress a distinct pattern on the eyes of the infant 
Thus, the earliest touching and embracing of the world is done by the infant with its own body, instructed by vernacular gender. Where gender predominates, growing up can never mean becoming a logical neuter, a genderless human, a nonspecific pupil. Uh, I think this is totally true, and it just resonates with um, a kind of theme within New Polity, which is that the family is an exception to the realm of sin in some really important ways that like it, we just very naturally do things within a family that um, we're not like planning to be good. We're just being good mm -hmm. and making a world and, you know, sharing and, and loving each other and all the things that we have is like Christian ideals that are really, really, really hard to achieve out yeah. in the social <laughs> world. It's like, they seem proper to the family. Like, we say that we're all individuals competing, but everyone knows that if you had a family of individuals competing, like that would be hell. Yeah. And so it's just that liberalism isn't true for families, which is just another way of saying it's not true at all, mm -hmm. but it's very evidently not true at all within the family. So, yeah. And I think it's a really hopeful thing that like when you en encounter a child, you don't encounter a logical neuter, a genderless human, a non-specific pupil, like you're forced to respond to your child and their uniqueness. Um, them being a girl or a boy, uh, because they're going to encounter the world differently. And it's just really obvious if you're in a household with a bunch of kids. Oh, yeah, totally. No, you can only lie about these things. I mean, everything's related, right? But we find ourselves more and more able to lie about these things when we also have practices like limiting ourselves to one or two kids and limiting our exposure to kids of multiple genders relating to kids of other genders. Like, oh, I didn't you, even think about that. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you got to think about the fact that if you have the average household having only two children, then you have more and more people being born who have had no primary experience with a sibling of the other sex, mm -hmm. right? Which is always a possibility. I'm just saying it, statistically, it's going to become way more common. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then you're going to have more and more only children who have no experience of siblings generally. Um, and then you're also going to have, besides that, more and more families who are actually raised by only one sex, right? Mm-hmm. So the the sort of formative years, the formative, um, yeah, the formative familial years reinforce some of the ideas that we have about gender, even as gender creates the conditions whereby we tend to make family structures the way, or, or the destruction of gender tends to reinforce the conditions of the broken family. Um, but it seems to me like Illich here is just saying, look, there's a a difference from the beginning, um, mm -hmm. even within infancy. And I mean, he seems to think that this is really like, this is a good thing. Um, and, and he doesn't talk about it in the way that we have earlier about this idea of the gendered worlds really being for each other. But I do think you, you see hints of that on page 128. Um, so he writes when from infancy, men and women grasp the world, from complementary sides, they develop two distinct models with which they conceptualize the universe. A gender-bound style of perception corresponds to each gender's domain of tools and tasks. Not only do they see the same things from different perspectives and in different hues, but early on they learn there is always another side to a thing. Mm. Um, and I think that is the, the gift that men and women can give to each other. And that that's a real sense of being for one another. Um, the world becomes a lot less flat and bland if you know that it is like 3d there is another side another uh yeah way of 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 looking at the thing um that's beyond your grasp and this makes the world a lot more mysterious and exciting and beautiful 
Totally. And I, I think you're underselling it. I mean, this is my suspicion that like the fact of learning that there's always another side to a thing is like a description of the awakening of the human intellect as such, Mm -hmm. you know, like for the animal, as best as we can figure when we observe them, there's one side to everything. Like things have univocal meanings related to the drives that animals have for survival, Mm -hmm. which is why they don't really live in worlds. They live in environments, these sort of surroundings, every object within their surroundings and their environment has some relation to their, to their life has some useful purpose to their life. That's why animals don't draw. That's why they don't speak. That's why they don't think about. Well, elephants can paint. Sort of. <laughs> uh, Neptune. They don't think about Neptune much, I don't think. Um, but within the human world, you have this advent of consciousness, which has things that stand out, not as just fulfilling this drive for hunger, this drive for sex, this drive for you know whatever but has a kind of in itselfness, like, you know, there's a water bottle and it's not that I want to drink water. It's that I'm considering it as being there. And it seems to me like having everything appear as having another side, another possible angle, another possible vision, someone Mm -hmm. else that can look at it differently. Someone else that has a different world that nevertheless contains the thing Mm -hmm. is almost a prerequisite for understanding the thing as having a excessive presence beyond my own individual drive for survival you know mm-hmm. it seems like that's like the world opening experience right and and it does seem like fundamentally men and women always safeguard the human like what makes human beings human um traditionally it's that they're a rational animal right they have this thing we call the intellectual operation um so it seems that with the it's not that gender is like unrelated to the human as if you have the real thing, which is the human. And then it has two sort of varieties, male and female, which is how we tend to view it. I'm, I'm trying to flip it entirely on its head. In fact, male and female, by virtue of that, that being a reality, um, dispose us to the properly human, um, activity of intellectual operation, Mm -hmm. the ability to have a world that is always bifurcated split, open to another angle mm-hmm. is just seems to be characteristic of the way reality appears to consciousness as opposed to animal desire. Right. Or maybe another way of putting it is that the need to communicate because when I, when I know that we're approaching things from within different worlds, sure, yeah, communication yeah. is what awakens intellectual activity. I mean, this is just true historically of yeah, our own. Empirically. Yeah. Yeah. That's how uh, babies start talking and such yeah the need to to like explain the thing or explain my interior life to another um a world that they can't enter into that's what awakens the intellectual life um now there is a a line that he says right after that that ends a paragraph that is um unique so he says well well i just had a, a different thought on it so he says that uh, early on they learn there's always another side to a thing. And some things are always within reach for a boy, but out of reach for girls most of the time. Um, and he doesn't say and vice versa, although it's true, mm-hmm. right? So when he's talking about space-time, spine. spine. <laughs> he, has, he, has, he says spine blocks at some point. Spine blocks. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> a new toy for Christmas. Every kid wants it. Get him a spine block. <laughs> 
so I, I, I think, I think that has that same, same effect. Um, what's interesting about the way that he's described spine blocks is that, uh, they're not always constructed the same. Like there, there really are, uh, different spaces where women cannot trespass and where men cannot trespass. There's always going to be certain places of the world that are not within our reach, but maybe the point isn't that we're safeguarding like those particular spaces. Maybe it's not the space itself that counts, but the fact that we have an experience of like places that we can never reach into, that we can mm. never grasp yeah. fully. Um, and especially if, if, if this, um, the gender domains, these worlds are what open us up to the mysterious other this is a part of our revelation of god what god is trying to teach us like our experience of gender is god trying to teach us humility before the creator and to have a concrete experience of a place where i cannot go totally. in a place that i'm excluded um from it it puts me in a place of humility because there's a a place i can't trespass into i can't uh, totalize my grasp. I can't be God. Yeah. I can't be yeah. everything. I can't be everywhere. Totally. That's really profound. Yeah. And I think in some ways we simply will have that. And it's not so much a question of whether we will have that, but whether it will be an experience that leads us to humility and worship or to like angst and mm -hmm. a sense of limitation. Right. So I'm thinking back to the bathroom thing because what's funny about what you express <laughs> is it's like, it's not that we've like destroyed gender and the sense of like, um, of like a trans, a place that we cannot trespass into. It's that that's a bathroom now. And that's sad. Like the reduction of the world to like these, these spaces that we're like, mm -hmm. so instead of saying like, okay, how can we make this world resplendent with places that I'm not allowed? Right. Mm -hmm. We say, okay, let's make sure I'm allowed everywhere. I'm not actually going to go everywhere because I'm finite and I don't really care. But theoretically, let's make theoretically. sure the whole place is open to us. And then I'm just going to run my head against those places that 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 can't be done to, mm -hmm. which at this point seems to be a bathroom, right? Um, yeah, well, yeah. well, one reflection that I've been having while, uh, while just like thinking about the topic of gender in, in general um, is that all of it, it, it really doesn't, make sense or take on a, its highest value except through the lens of Christianity because why why is it that we make these constructions in the first place why is it that God gave us these bodies these different worlds um and it's for our own sake it's to to teach us about him it's about uh forming us so we can enter into communion with him and so my experience of of the other is ultimately about leading me to heaven and if that's not a value that's on the table, yeah. then there's certain things about the world that we just won't be able to grasp. Yeah, as I did, if you're frustrated that there's still male spaces that you can, can't enter into, you're going to have a real problem with like the seraphic courts of, of heaven, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be a, it seems to be a difficulty. I, I wonder whether since you opened up the door to just general thoughts we've had when, as I've been reading this book, I've gotten this real sense of the exhausting nature of modernity in wanting to totalize the individual so that he's free to do everything. I mean, 
I'm going to speak from a very, like, it's going to sound daddish, I guess. <laughs> but, like, man, it's just very peaceful whenever you establish within a home a place that you don't belong, like, or a, a task that is not yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be different for each home. This is the problem with, like, trads is that they think that it's some kind of list of things that, like, these are the things that the woman must do and these are things that the man must do. But the point is more that the fact of having a gendered world means there's part of the world that you don't have to worry about. Yeah. I think this doesn't get talked about enough that it's like where, where men and women are able to do everything. It's like, we're able to do everything, Ah! (laughs) you know, and and they've done all these studies for what they're worth, uh, you know, talking about how, you know, people that try this to have like every part of the house, every task equally exchanged back and forth between the husband and the wife. (laughs) they obviously get into more conflicts and are more stressed about Mm -hmm. it um, than people that just naturally, not with any like ideological commitment, just Mm -hmm. end up saying, yeah, you do the laundry, I do the cooking, or, you know, you clean that room, I clean this room. You know, we have a gendered world that comes Mm -hmm. out of our search for peace. We're not like trying to implement a a medieval vision here. Yeah. You're constructing a world that's for the other. Like the reason why I have this task is for the sake of our household. Right. And it's for the sake of everyone. Right. The peace that comes with being rejected from the laundry room is palpable. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't want to be there. It's not because I disdain it. I know that I need it. Mm-hmm. Like I absolutely need a woman to be doing what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, to be rejected from that space is precisely to have a part of the world that's taken care of by someone else who has genuine authority over it. Earlier on, um, Illich talks about how between the two worlds, there's no like higher authority. And I think this is one of the things that's lost is the sense of places in which you are in fact the authority, like you have care over it. Mm-hmm. It is yours, not yours contingently, not yours on Wednesdays, but not on Thursdays, but like you have domain dominion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Whereas within our world, because we're so afraid of being rejected from anywhere, we end up paradoxically ending ending up without any dominion over anywhere because right. every place has to be theoretically open to um, the woman as every woman's space has to like theoretically be ultimately open to the man. Um, and it does seem like once again, women get the raw end of the deal um, in this, in this transition. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's something to be said, not just about like, cause sometimes we'll talk about like the tension, um, between the genders that forms the dance. I think that's quite right, mm-hmm. but it's also the expansion of areas of the world that people know, uh, belong to a different authority. And so have the peace of someone who's under their authority. Mm-hmm. This is, this gets lost, I think, cause we think of authority always as like a male thing that comes down and then women are somehow under male's authority or whatever. But actually the experience is that when like to be under authority just means you're not the one who's taking care of the thing. Um, and you really will be punished for trespassing on a realm in which someone else has mm-hmm. the authority. And that's right. And it seems to me what gendered worlds naturally do is precisely give authority to women mm-hmm. um, and give authority to men. And it seems what unisex worlds do is they get rid of authority altogether and they try to give power to men and women, right? Just the sheer capacity to do whatever they want to do, but then they end up with whole realms where no one's really taking care of anyone. I mean, I don't know. You see this a little bit where it's like, 
okay, both men and women can work. So now the kids go to daycare. So it's like, there's no domain of care that leads to authority mm -hmm. because now you're just paying someone to do that. Right. No, no, uh, not trying to be mean. It just seems like modernity suffers total spaces in which there is no authority. No one's taking care of anyone. Um, and the gendered world seems to thrive and delight in ever smaller and more particular realms of, of authority and dominion. Yeah. And, and that's, um, another thing I was noticing about, uh, to kind of riff off of that. Um, yeah, it, it's, you can give actual domain. Um, you can actually reign over a space if you have, gendered worlds um you have possibility of real competition within the gendered worlds right. um but again it's not it's flexible it's not a, a rigid thing that there ought to be gendered worlds yes but there's not only one way to construct it um there's certainly bad ways of constructing it there's many good ways of constructing it um and maybe you might, I don't know, maybe, maybe you might be in a, a certain construction where like, you don't feel like, uh, you fit that world or you can dance that dance particularly well. Right. Um, and that's certainly possible, but again, kind of to move back to, well, what is the construction of the gendered worlds for is to give you an experience of there being another, of another world. And, um, in that way. Like, even if you like experience that kind of discomfort, it's not all for loss. Mm -hmm. One other thing I want to mention is his association of gender transgression with cataclysmic moments. Oh, Where yeah. was this? Was this, this might be in the next chapter. Did we want to save that for next time or do we oh, want to keep really? going? The gender through time. I think so. Oh, I thought that was our last chapter that we're doing. Are we not doing Journey Through Time now? I forget what we said. Well, we were going to do it, but we've also been talking for a bit. Where is it? Okay. You want to just end with this? Yeah, I think so. Uh, 144. That's where I'm looking. Um, well, I guess it's really one, 143. Um... So he's talking about something that we all, I think, are very familiar with, like gender transgression. This is like the absolute fetish of academic gender studies. Like wherever mm -hmm. you can find any transgression, you're like, I'm going to do my dissertation on this. And then you get <laughs> tenure or whatever. Um, it's very boring because it's usually just some kind of reading in of modernity into history and saying like, see, like, look at all the transgender people in the Middle Ages. It's here too. Yeah, right. Thesis statement. Right. The end. Yeah, it's rough. Um. So Illich has a little bit of a better take in that he says on 143, in all times and places, we find evidence that without change in its contour or its magnitude, the barrier between genders um, has been trespassed. Public misfortune is often cause for such a breach. During the Middle Ages, um, 
During the Middle Ages, the heavy-wheeled plow drawn by a shod and harnessed horse was almost the symbol of male gender. Women would not dare to approach either the tool or the animal. But we find several late 14th century miniatures from northern France depicting women handling the plow. The plague had decimated the population, and war had carried off most of the surviving men. Women had to work the fields until their boys became adults. Here's a couple other examples of this. Now, on the one hand, this is like just saying the most obvious thing in the world, but I think it's worth emphasizing. It's a human construction, which means it's free, mm -hmm. which means that there is no contradiction that when it becomes necessary to violate right. the gendered world, that you do in fact violate the gendered world. Mm -hmm. Because the point is that it is supposed to be for like, like everything that Illich has discussed is like it's for putting food on the table. It's for having a house. It's mm -hmm. for subsistence. So that if subsistence is threatened by the maintenance of a particular gender taboo or whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. then it goes and it goes yeah. easily. Mm -hmm. It would be perverse and it would be precisely something that the church would be at war with if somehow in this situation he describes women were still like, I can't touch the horse. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's hard because we always think of it, of the disaster as being now. Like we don't see that, okay, there is a time of peace in which it is okay to have a whole world that you don't deal with because it is under someone else's authority. But when that person is destroyed, when that goes away for mm -hmm. some reason, it is proper and just for you to take it under your authority. But that doesn't mean that what you're doing is like, well, I'm, you know, trans transgressive, right? Like yeah. it's, it is transgressive, but only with reference to the peace. But the point is mm -hmm. that the peace has been broken. And so now there's new, there's new norms. Um, one of the consequences of Illich's description here is, that um, modernity could be described in some ways as just an extension right. of a state of emergency or of a calamity mm -hmm. such that the calamity itself is described as as a normal life. Mm -hmm. And I think you see some evidence of this being being really the case that um, if you look at like, you know, we talked about the rise of the nation states. Well, they rise in response to a threat, namely Napoleon, um, as everyone tries to do what he's doing to create a structured military to be able to survive his empire um, and its aggression. You have the construction of states that are essentially concretizing this calamity. So you have standing armies, you have... Um, um, you know, the way taxes are structured, you have the emergency destruction of local difference so that there's easy command structures. Mm. You essentially have a state of war that becomes a norm of life. It doesn't go away. Right. That's what I'm saying. It becomes the very uh, form of life for that people. A, a really obvious example of this in America is, is, you know, before World War II, you still had this obvious presence of a gendered world, however mm -hmm. you judge it. I don't really mind, but the point is that there was a male world and there was a female world mm -hmm. um, prior to World War II. Um, and because of the emergency of the war, women moved into what was a male world and took up work in the factories and started doing industrial work for the production of weapons um, and other, other things um, for the war effort. And there's a romance about that time, but it's really interesting because the romance depends on it not being normal. Like it's heroic because they're taking a position of authority that's necessary and needed mm -hmm. that's been left there. So you think of like the image of Rosie the Riveter. Right. It's a paradoxical image, right? Because she is she's flexing a muscle that isn't really there doing mm -hmm. this, you know, which is like a male pose. sort of pose. She's a hero precisely because she is – and her hair is tied back, right? Mm -hmm. She's a hero precisely because she's – because there is a male who's not there 
right? Mm -hmm. But if if it is simply the ordinary, you know, rote state of, state of affairs, then there's nothing about going to work that makes either male or female give you Her the old heroic. Uh, <laughs> heroic thing. There's no calamity here um, at all. And that's what you see in World War after World War II is that, you know, the women that moved into the factory, that just became, um, it never went away. Yeah. So it mm -hmm. became, wartime production became the norm. Um, that kind of total mobilization of the workforce became the norm. Propaganda became the norm through advertising. Like the things we did to fight the war became the way we lived. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think that there's a way in which, um, he's quite right that, um, as long as we're still operating within this mentality of a cataclysm of an emergency of, um, the, the desperate need for survival, as long as that's sort of the background motivation of people like, um, where there's no rest in sight, there's no like enjoyment as the object. It's just like production excess, you know, storing up, getting wealthy, um, avoiding, you know, calamity, avoiding scarcity. Mm -hmm. Um, when these are the motivations, it does seem like gender is perpetually deferred. Like, it's not that it can be ever obliterated. It's just that it's always shoved to a side. It's like, well, we're still within the, we're, st we're still at war, baby. So, but going back in time, uh, yeah, I, I liked these couple pages, um, because again, he's emphasizing that, uh, the the gendered line and like it's it's like a river and it changes over time um it really is uh a, a construction i just get excited about it because um it's looking back on the past and seeing that yes there were gendered worlds but it wasn't an absolute world mm -hmm. um it wasn't a, a world of like rigid conformity and there was an actual place for exceptions to mm -hmm. the norm so one of them would be a state of emergency um, like just like nothing that either of the genders have, have done. There's like war or there's famine. Um, there's exceptions within the individual household. Like mm -hmm. maybe the man or the woman is sick. So mm -hmm. you take on different tasks and it, in an ideal world, that wouldn't be something that's like taboo or shamed. Mm -hmm. Um, but then there's also, there's, uh, there's the exceptions that are meant to shame the other. Um, so if the man's not stepping up and being responsible in his, his own role, then the woman's involvement in that is, uh, an act to like shame him into getting his act together. It's pointed. Yes. <laughs> um, but all of those aren't what Illich would call on, this is a footnote on 145, um, defiance which he defines as always being a political act i don't really just i don't agree with that but um exceptions to the norm are not always defiance uh which are those instances of infraction that constitute a symbolic attack on the established order like when a woman in that situation takes on the male role she's not trying to usurp him um she's trying to call him to action yeah um so there's a, a role for that. Another one that I thought was really interesting. Um, I can't remember if he... Well, he talks about cross-dressing, I think, uh, around here. But the idea of carnival. 
Like we even have um, like ritual moments of transgressing the gender lines, but it's not uh, an infraction. That's this symbolic attack on the established order. Right. It's like a, an act of mocking um, that like reinforces right, the norm. It but it's depends it's on it to in order to be intelligible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Con- contra Butler, right? So. With Butler, drag isn't fun because if you ask anyone why they're at a drag show, they have to be like, well, I'm troubling the heteronormative, uh, you know, patriarchal <laughs> oppression of the poor or whatever. And it's like you can't just be like, I f- think it's funny to dress up like a woman. That's that's no. unenlightened, stupid, no. stupid, <laughs> dumb Michael, bad Michael. Um, and I think that one of the reasons is because like her metaphysics and then her like political recommendations are totally at war. It's like, well, you just told me metaphysically that none of this matters and we're just doing whatever. And then you mm-hmm. told me like politically that we're somehow supposed to like use what doesn't matter in a way that matters. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it seems like once you have the gendered world and you're saying like, no, this is real, this is a like, good, this is how we preserve ourselves in our humanity is by keeping the twofoldness of society then it can it's precisely that which enables transgression which enables saying like well precisely because we know in a thick and resounding way what like a woman's world is can mm-hmm. a man imitate it in a way that's funny precisely because he can't he yeah. can't imitate it without occupying it yeah and I, and I i like that there's an actual place for that and it serves a real purpose and it allows you to appreciate them more like when you see like men imitating women it like it's just funny <laughs> and it really reinforces how different we are because like as soon as like a man tries to take up like like female poses in the mm-hmm. way that women act like it just it doesn't work <laughs> uh and it's just so obvious uh how different we are and it it should lead to like a moment of of joy um and in recognizing okay we are different and this is a good thing yeah no i mean i think about how like most shakespeare plays or at least most of the comedies seem to end up in like some kind of cross-dressing situation uh to save the day uh <laughs> and of course there's all the the literature about how this is really just you know shakespeare is just ahead of his time but it seems like he's way more within in the tradition because mm-hmm. once you have a um when you have the binary then you can play with it when you deny its existence then you can't you know you can do you can do it for a little while as long as you're sort of presupposing it but but eventually your your logic eats itself um Mm -hmm. yeah so there we are about at the end about right so we want to end with the very last chapter is a small chapter and then we want to offer um, our critique of Illich, um, both mm-hmm. in a in a kind sense of just a summary um, and an application, but also in a in a negative sense, he says some, I think, just damn foolish things. He's <laughs> um, got a very interesting take on confession. Yeah, I think I think we're we're all going to really enjoy the confession discussion. Yeah. He kind of sucks it out of Foucault and doesn't criticize it enough. Um, yeah, so next time we'll we'll be taking the tail end of Gender Through Time. Uh, yeah. And then the very, very end. Okay. Well, thank you very much for following along here. We'll see you next time.
Bye.